You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. Today's episode introduces us to a real hero, Simmer Singh, a decorated army captain and devout Sikh. Simmer's military career has been marked by courage and distinction. In this episode, we'll explore his courage in a different kind of battle, a battle over his religious freedom. Simmer's story will highlight a common free exercise violation, restrictions on religious attire, in a unique setting, the U.S. Army. The Army's a highly regulated organization, and for good reason. But just how far can the Army go in restricting soldiers' freedoms? And what happens if a soldier is forced to choose between God and country? The Sikh faith originated in the region of Punjab, in India, near the end of the 15th century. It's a monotheistic religion based on the teachings of the first guru, the Guru Nanak, and his nine successors. The tenth guru did something a little different. He named the Sikh scripture called Guru Granth Sahib as his successor. That means no more human gurus. Instead, scripture would serve as the final and eternal guru for Sikhism. There's about 25 million Sikhs today, uh, and today it's actually the world's fifth largest religion. That's Simrat Paul Singh. I go by Simmer. He's currently serving as an engineer captain officer in the U.S. Army. I was born a Sikh into a Sikh family, but I think at some point I decided to be a Sikh, right? Which I think are two different things. Simmer's family emigrated from India to the United States when he was young. But when he was living in Punjab, he spent a lot of time with his grandparents. His grandmother told him stories about six through the ages. Six, including kids, who held fast to their faith even in the face of danger and persecution. When Simmer moved to Seattle with his family, these stories grounded him in his faith and led him to explore it further. I did, at least I didn't understand my faith until I came here and I was in the minority and people were asking me questions and all of a sudden you have to think, why, why, why is this important to me? Why am I, you know, because if your answer is just cause, then, then you got a problem. Uh, and so I think it was in, I would say probably middle school uh, and partly, you know, again, as I mentioned previously, going to Sunday school at the Gurdwara, which is a Sikh temple that I really, you know, decided I, I want to get closer to my faith. I want to better understand my faith. Uh, the values, the, the sake of values, um, you know, I want to start living these values and, and I want to make them a greater part of my life. The Sikh faith teaches five core virtues, truth, compassion, contentment, humility, and love. It also stresses the importance of service and striving for justice. The importance of justice in the Sikh faith means that Sikhs have a rich tradition of armed service. Sikh faith stresses this balance of being a saint and being a soldier. And, and part of that being a soldier is, is really standing up for what's right, what we consider as just, and, and for those who can't uh, essentially defend themselves, uh, and then standing up against un, an unjust system. Back in the day, Punjab being kind of the, the gateway into India, uh, it was a fairly turbulent region where, you know, invaders would come from the north to try to invade. and. 
A lot of times it was the Sikhs standing there as uh, almost like guardians to India. And part of Sikhs having the, the uniform that we wear today is so that a Sikh can stand out. Uh, so that way back in the day when when there was nobody else available, someone in the village can go to a Sikh and essentially uh, almost like, ha and this is maybe a very loose uh, a connection, but a, a sheriff's uniform, you know, in the wild, wild west, you know, knowing that, hey, this is a guy that I can go to get reliable uh, assistance. Simmer mentioned that six wear a uniform of sorts. It's comprised of the five Kakar. We'll call them the five Ks. I'm a little out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to go ahead and try to say them. Kesh. Kesh is uh, hair, uncut hair. A six believe it to be the natural embodiment of the human form uh, and um, associated with uh, saintliness. And that's how, you know, God, Vaheguru, wants us to be. Kanga. The Kanga or the comb, uh, essentially that uh, represents and functions as a cleanliness mechanism. So you keep it in your, your hair and your head and it's supposed to, you know, remind a Sikh to keep themselves clean. Kara. Kara is a, which a bra an iron bracelet that you wear on your wrist that essentially represents and symbolizes and, and functions as a reminder for a Sikh to always remember that God is watching, that God is omnipresent, God is all-knowing. Kashera. Which is uh, long underwear. Originally, you know, when Sikhs used to live on, on uh, in the jungles of Punjab and, and you know, fighting the invaders, it functioned as a very useful article of clothing that gave them a lot of freedom of movement while letting them preserve their dignity. And, and it, today, it really reminds folks to have control over their passion and, and lust and, and essentially uh, keep those things in check. And Kirpan. Kirpa essentially means uh, mercy, and that's the sword. It both symbolizes and functions as a mechanism for standing up for what is unjust. The five Ks comprise the initiated six uniform. If you listened to last season's podcast, you might remember a sick woman who worked for the federal government and ran into issues with wearing her kirpan in a federal building. Spoiler, we won that case, and six working for the government can wear their kirpans. But in Simmer's case, with the U.S. military, his troubles came down to the first K he mentioned, Kesh. For Simmer, that means uncut hair kept in a turban and, of course, a beard. He started wearing the turban and growing a beard when he was in high school. Every young Sikh male decides to wear the turban at a different age, whatever works for folks. Uh, I, have a, I have a good friend whose son wears it now and he you know, has been wearing it in, since he was like three or four years old, uh, which I think is awesome. And then, you know, I know folks that don't start wearing it until after high school, right? So it, it varies. Um, I started in 10th grade and, and I remember it was a big deal. It was, you know, it was a big change. and. I'd hate to bring this up, but in, in a, in a, in a post 9-11 almost kind of a time, and this was in was it 10th grade, so probably 2003, I think, 2003, 2004, right? So uh, deciding to wear the term was a big deal, and uh, it was interesting, you know, I was actually, I was on the student council for the school, uh, and so, uh, but I got nothing but love, nothing but love. This is in Seattle. I love that. That was high school. Right. The Army was different. Because as we all know, being in the army means signing on to one of the most regulated careers imaginable, including the clothes you wear. When you join the U.S. Army, you give up some of your individual rights for the sake of unit security and cohesiveness. So the question here was, can you be both? 
Folly Sick, and Folly Soldier? If history was any indication, the answer would be yes. Sikhs have served in the United States, we know, since at least World War I, possibly before. That's Eric Baxter, vice president and senior counsel at Beckett. And there are many stories of their valor during World War II, especially for the armed forces of Great Britain, where there were whole regiments of Sikh soldiers who you know, were noted for their valor and for their great victories. Clearly, for a long time, the Sikh beard and turban were not a problem in the military. But in the 1980s, new regulations entered the picture and changed everything. Until the early 1980s, there were no problems with Sikhs serving in the military. In fact, when the regulations were introduced in the 1980s that forced them to shave, one of the six who was then serving in the military was responsible for training other soldiers how to wear the gas mask properly, even though he had a full beard and turban and so forth. Um, And he was grandfathered in after the regulations were passed. So the Army had already been allowing this for a long time. It was really an accident, I think, that... Reagan wanted to tighten the discipline in the military after the 70s in Vietnam. And so the army got more serious about its grooming and dress regulations. And the impact on the Sikhs was an unintended but very significant consequence. Simmer experienced it firsthand when he decided in high school that he wanted to join the army, or more specifically, to go to West Point Academy. There was the the discipline aspect of it that I you know attracted me to to military service. Uh, and then probably more so than anything else, I would say my father, you know, was given political asylum here in the U.S. My uh, mom and my brother followed two years later, and we felt blessed to be given the opportunity to come here. There were many other countries that my dad applied to, but the U.S. opened its its door for my father. And so I felt compelled that, you know, hey, I got to give back. I got to give back in, in some fashion. At first, it didn't occur to Simmer that his articles of faith would present any problems. It was weird. I, it never dawned on me, never, never came into my thought that a Sikh, right, a Sikh would have issue joining an army. The, the idea that I, with my articles of faith, would not be able to uh, join was was so bizarre to me that it didn't didn't even come to my mind until uh, this gentleman who was interviewing me, you know, told me, "Hey, this this is a real possibility. You know, hey, you're gonna have to shave, and you're gonna you're not gonna be able to wear your turban." And at the time, I said, "That's not an option, and we got to figure something out." <laughs> this is the the naive eighteen year old me thinking, hey, I'm going to go there. I'm going to show up on initial day one of West Point, and I'm going to convince them. I'm going to convince the United States Military Academy that to let me keep my beard and turban. I show up there, and they shuttle you around from station to station. Uh, I'm trying to find someone I can talk to, some you know, an officer that I can talk to. I connect with two or three majors, but nothing materializes. Nothing, you know, I'm, I'm unable to essentially convince them. And I remember one of the last stations for the day was the, was the barbershop. And that's when it hit me, like, what have I gotten myself into? I vividly remember standing outside the barbershop uh, in a line and, you know, each kid's going into the barbershop and soon I remember, hey, it's gonna be my turn and thinking, what do I do? Like, what's the decision, right? And so I'm I'm telling you, like, everything's playing through my head. 
you know, all the stories that I'd heard from my grandparents in Sikh history, you know, Sikhs giving up their head rather than their faith. And and so I felt like I was essentially betraying every every everything it, that it meant to be a Sikh. Despite Simmer's anguish, he went in, but it was a loaded decision. I remember making the decision to go ahead into the barbershop by saying that I'm going to figure out a way to come back to my roots. I'm going to figure out a way to change this. At West Point, Simmer got his electrical engineering degree and became an Army engineer stationed at Fort Lewis. From there, he went to Army Ranger School, and afterwards, he was deployed to Afghanistan, where he earned a Bronze Star. A strong component of my faith is is Kala, right? Kala meaning staying in high spirit. You know, there were many trying times within my military service when I dug deep into my faith and tried to stay in Kala. And so, you know, when I would dig deep into those core principles of my faith, then I would realize, well, wait a minute, I, I, you know, there's still that other part of me that's not complete. I can try to live those principles and those values, but I, I don't feel like I'm living a complete life and practice my faith how I want to by not being able to wear all my articles of faith. Simmer knew he needed to find a way to gain back the right to exercise his faith in full, but he wasn't sure how to do it until he received an unexpected invitation. I'm at uh, Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, doing my captain's career course, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, I don't know how the Sikh Coalition got a hold of my uh, my email or something, but uh, they invite me out to the Pentagon event. It was a uh, Vasaki, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a uh, big holiday of the Sikh faith. The Sikh Coalition is a community-based organization that works to advance civil and human rights. Amrit Kaur, the legal director of the Sikh Coalition, told us how the organization actually began on September 11, 2001. And it was the immediate result of post-9-11 backlash against the Sikh community. The first person that was killed as a result of 9-11 retaliation and backlash was a Sikh American in Mesa, Arizona. His name is Bulbir Singh Sodi. And it's interesting, he was actually putting um, American flags in the ground outside of his, he owned a gas station and convenience store, and he was putting them in the ground to you know, show solidarity. And while he was doing that, he was gunned down by somebody who admitted that they saw him and were irate at what had happened um, on 9-11 and wanted his revenge. I was actually a student here at GW during that time. And I was the president of the Sikh Students Association. There were a number of Sikhs either on campus or in the law school, the graduate programs, or just working professionally in the area. And everybody realized, everybody realized that this is bad for people that look like us. And so um, we immediately kind of convened a roundtable 
And it was a bunch of people in their late teens and, you know, reaching all the way up to their late 20s. (laughs) So a lot of young people, but motivated people. And we realized that something needed to be done right away. And we just kind of mobilized and started working with uh, Senator Durbin's office to establish resolutions against hate crimes because on 9-11, the Senate released resolutions against hate crimes against Muslims, but hadn't said anything condemning hate crimes against six. And we just wanted that to be out there in public. And we wanted people to understand that the government was taking this seriously and the community was involved. Today, the Sikh coalition continues its work educating the public and raising awareness about the Sikh religion and issues facing American Sikhs. So they had worked with the Office of the Pentagon Chaplain to put on this Sikh holiday event that Simmer mentioned earlier. So it was a Vasaki celebration event uh, that they invited me to the Pentagon. I, I saw someone you know, wearing a beard and turban in uniform, and uh, it wasn't. Uh, I was like, man, this that's interesting. You know, uh, I can do this, right? Like, uh, that's what I want. Uh, this is a possibility. This is a real possibility. What Simmer didn't know when he was at the Pentagon event was that the Sikh Coalition had been working with other Sikhs in the military, specifically in the medical corps, to obtain the right to wear their turbans and beards. They had met with limited success, gaining accommodations for individuals, but not across the board. So we used legal advocacy and communications and publicity uh, measures to obtain those first few individual religious accommodations for the soldiers in the medical corps. And while we were working on sort of these piecemeal cases, we realized that the Army really wasn't willing to take it to the next step and formalize a policy that allowed for observant six to serve. And that told us that if we do want that to become the norm, then we're probably going to have to go ahead and litigate this. And that's basically where the Beckett Fund came in, because my predecessors, I wasn't part of the campaign at the time, right? But um, my predecessors, I think, reviewed Beckett's expertise in religious rights issues and also in litigation, on religious rights issues and really felt like it was in the best interests of the military campaign to coordinate with an organization like yours that had that level of expertise with these types of cases in particular. So there were two journeys happening side by side and independently. The Sikh coalition was working to secure religious accommodations for Sikhs in the military. And Simmer was advancing in his military career, but without being able to fully express his religious beliefs. And then the two met. Simmer started talking to the Sikh Coalition and Beckett lawyers about how to get a religious accommodation. Eric Baxter was the lead attorney for the case. Uh, I flew out and met him in Seattle, and he was, you know, he he grows a pretty thick beard. (laughs) And it was already coming in quite nicely. We wrote to his commander and said, he's going to show up at the end of this month with his beard and turban. His commander was incredible. She was extremely supportive. She had no problem. She was clear that he would be able to do his work with a beard and turban, that it was not in any way going to impede his ability to serve. But she had to get permission up the chain. We needed assurance because he would be in violation of military code and could really be locked up if he showed up in insubordinate with a beer and turban. The answer from the top was anything but prompt. So the military was very squishy getting back to us. And ultimately, he ended up taking 
30 days of personal leave to extend the time because after the month, the military still hadn't given him a clear answer. We didn't want to file a lawsuit if there was a possibility the military would just accommodate him. So he took 15 days and then another 15 days to give the army more time. Finally, at the end of that 30 days, a total of 60 days, the military said, okay, you, we will give you a, a temporary accommodation to come. This was in December. That's December of 2015. We'll give you until January 8th, and then we'll give you a final decision. Well, January 8th comes, and there's still no decision. So they said, okay, we're going to extend your time till March 31st. Now, we were in the meantime thinking, this is great, because the longer he's serving, the more it shows that there's no real reason to keep him out. And his commander loved him. He is, uh, his whole team loved him. Like he was very well received and popular within, you know, among his peers. But then why does it always have to be a, but then? Well, toward the end of February, he unexpectedly got a letter saying that he needed to show up for individualized testing to see if his turban or his um, helmet and gas mask would really work with his turban and beard. That seems, on the surface, reasonable that the military would say, well, let's just test and see if this works. But the broader context showed that this was a ruse of some sort because there were already hundreds, thousands, actually, of soldiers who were allowed to wear beards um, who had never been tested. So at any given time, there were, it was our estimate that there were around 100,000 soldiers who were allowed to be to maintain some form of a beard for medical reasons. And also at that time, it was well known that um, soldiers in the special forces or out on the front lines in the Middle East were allowed to wear beards, full beards, in order to blend in with the locals and to have, to generate greater cultural trust and so forth. So it made no sense for the army to say, you have to come in and be tested. We're going to spend $30,000 to make sure that your helmet and your gas mask work. All this was not standard for someone with Simmer's record. And to add insult to injury, the higher-ups told Simmer that when he reported for the testing, he would have to be under escort. I've never understood the reasoning for it, but it, it felt like somehow they weren't trusting me anymore, uh, which was, you know, you nor normally in the Army, you provide an escort to so a soldier who you're not sure if they're going to get there. Like, you're not sure if they're going to fulfill their duty, right? So, so, so you want to make sure that you can escort that person from place to place to place. And so that uh, definitely uh, was a surprise and, and an unfortunate surprise to me. Just that sense of here's a guy who's really given his life to the military and they're treating him like he's you know, dishonorable was, was really highly offensive. We decided this was the moment to file our lawsuit. So basically over the weekend, we prepared a complaint, a motion, um, filed in court and asked for an emergency hearing to stop the testing. Well, as luck would have it, Simmer's patrol was coincidentally selected to undergo gas mask testing during this period. So either way, Simmer would have to do the test. Which was fine. We weren't objecting to having Simmer tested to see whether the gas mask would work with his beard. The legal complaint was intended to challenge the reason for which they were making him do the testing. If it's his whole patrol being randomly selected, that's one thing. But they were singling Simmer out for a one-off sample size of one test at the same time that they were allowing thousands of other soldiers to have beards for other reasons without going through a test like that. Simmer was going through the test with his patrol whether or not we filed our lawsuit. 
But by filing our lawsuit, we had the opportunity to show that the individual test requirement for Simmer was discriminatory. And that was important. So behind the scenes, Simmer was preparing for the test with his patrol. But the Pentagon, the guys who were fighting us in court, they didn't really know what was happening at the patrol level. It just was, it was completely random that he was sent um, with his patrol to do gas mask testing. So of course, this is his first time with a beard and turban. So he was asking other people, getting all kinds of instruction, trying to understand, you know, but fairly confident because other people had done this, that it would work. Like something out of a legal drama, Simmer's patrol test was actually scheduled for the same morning as oral arguments in our case. So we were in court, I think this was a Monday or a Tuesday morning, and we are literally on our phones in the courtroom waiting for him to text us whether he passed or failed the gas mask test. Is this an oral argument? This is an oral argument. So we are about ready to walk in to talk to the judge and tell her this guy deserves to be able to keep his beard while we don't know how this test is going to turn out. And right before we went in, we got a text and he was like, two thumbs up, everything went perfectly, no problem. And so it was really satisfying to stand up and say, our client just walked out of the gas chamber and his gas mask sealed no problem. That's the kind of lucky timing that you just can't always control in a case, but it was really helpful to our arguments. The judge was also, and this is where I think her background helped, she was very offended that the military had instructed him to show up under escort. She said, why would you treat this, you know, captain, the Bronze Star Medal recipient, why would you treat him as if he couldn't show up on his own? In March of 2016, the judge ordered the Department of Defense to immediately stop all discriminatory testing against Simmer, testing that targeted him and only him because of his religious beliefs and granted him temporary protection so that he could wear his beard. Somebody said it, it was like a poetry in the courtroom. I was elated to hear that the, the judge came down in our favor and essentially said, the army needs to give me a more permanent religious accommodation and was actually um, surprised that uh, they were putting me through this kind of testing and, and the escorting, uh, considering my record in the Army. On the one hand, the Army's reluctance to grant Simmer his accommodation seems surprising. To let him wear his beard seems a small thing. But on the other hand, you have to remember that the Army requires many sacrifices, and that can often include religious liberty. Exactly. The military has many situations when they have compelling reasons why they might ask someone to sacrifice their faith temporarily. You know, someone is sent to fight in an area where they can't really exercise their faith or access a congregation or a pastor. And the military has tries to accommodate that by providing chaplains. But you can imagine situations where safety, national security, the urgency of the situation of war require soldiers to sacrifice aspects of their faith. Still, wherever and whenever possible, the military has a duty to protect religious freedom. And in Simmer's case, it had been clear that he was denied an exemption, not for any practical purposes, but purely because his request was religious. And it's heartbreaking to think of that when it was his faith that animated Simmer to serve his country. He ended up being subjected to really burdensome testing related to gas masks and, you know, fit tests. And he was 
He was able to pass the test that came his way. But the problem is um, that the army just wasn't recognizing the significance of putting him through all these extra measures that nobody else was getting put through unless they were in some way unfit. You know, and a lot of that comes down to their mental condition and other physical conditions, which were non-existent in Simmer's case. And so they were purely putting him through these additional measures based on his religious accommodation requests. The army hadn't made every bearded soldier go through individualized testing like this. It was just Simmer. We know that there were people in the Pentagon who did not want him to have a religious accommodation. And they were, now to the credit of many people, there were a lot of people there who were supportive of him. But there were also people in the chain of command who did not want to make exceptions. They saw this as a breach of uniformity, a breach of that spirit of, you know, the spirit of core that we're, you know, we're one, uh, we give up our individual identity on behalf of our nation. And they felt very strongly about that and were doing everything they could to thwart it. But the judge granted Simmer temporary protection, and in January of 2017, the accommodation became permanent when the Army changed its regulations. The Army now allows six to serve across the board without having to abandon their turbans or beards. And there's been more progress from there. The policy change really told us and the the Sikh community that wants to serve and chooses to serve that their articles of faith are not going to pose a barrier to this chosen profession, which is a big deal. Um, And then thanks to the hard work of a number of organizations, there's been recent progress in other branches of the military too. So last year, the U.S. Air Force accommodated four six, four observant six, um, three of whom are serving and one of whom is um, going to start his basic military training this spring. So we're definitely seeing the Army policy change Um, bleed into the other military branches, which I think is really great. But this case shows that even the military can fulfill its mission and still do a lot to minimize the infringement of religious freedom. And in fact, when they do that, it enhances the military's mission because you have soldiers who are experiencing the privileges of American freedom and our constitutional rights and are personally invested in protecting them. And it also just has that effect of showing that a great nation can remain pluralistic, that you can have Sikhs and and Muslims and Christians and Jews, and they can fight side by side for the principles that define our nation while still walking their own religious path. So... How far can the army go in restricting soldiers' free exercise? Not so far as to deny Sikhs the right to wear their beards. Simmer Singh's pursuit to get back the right to freely exercise his faith had a huge impact. And the best part about it, which is true of all our cases, is that an individual's victory ends up being a victory for many. When you strengthen free exercise of religion for one, you strengthen it for all Americans. I find myself holding myself to a higher standard. Uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not only am I wearing the, the uniform of our nation, but I'm wearing the uniform of my faith. And so, you know, I have to represent both entities well. And so I find myself higher, holding myself to an even higher standard. 
a month doesn't go by when I when some a new Sikh recruit connects with me and reaches out. I mean, we we have a, we have a, a little group where we try to mentor or kind of uh, essentially help each other out. It's absolutely a blessing, and and uh, it reminds me of, of how how many I think lives that that we've touched. Thank you to Simmer Singh, Amrit Kaur, and Eric Baxter for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode, courtesy of APM Music and Jay Tibbetts. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. Our clients have included Amish, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. For more information on RIFRA, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media. <laughs>